one. Hello, and welcome to Research Chatter, a podcast sponsored by the Strategic Management Society. I'm your co-host, Ronnie Chatterjee from Duke University in North Carolina, and I'm joined, as always, by Charlie Williams from Bocconi University in Milan. And here we are together in the same studio again. It's always fun when we hit a conference and we could actually do this in person. So we are at the Academy of Management in Anaheim, California, and film, taping our seventh episode. These are two, uh, it's been two really great to see so many of our friends and colleagues here in Anaheim. We've gotten lots of feedback, especially on the last episode about Steve Klepper's book, Experimental Capitalism. So great. Keep listening. Keep let us know, letting, letting us know what you think. And uh, if you have any ideas for topics you'd like to hear about, please let us know. Charlie, it's always great to be in the same studio during Research Chatter. We're going to try it again at the SMS conference in Berlin That's next right. month. So we're going to sort of keep consistent here where we can be in the same place uh, at the same time. The purpose of the series is to highlight big ideas from business school professors from around the world. In each episode, we focus on one topic where business school researchers are uncovering new insights, trying to translate those findings into ideas that you can take to work in the real world or discuss with your students if you teach this stuff like we do. Uh, this podcast is and always has been an experiment. It's an experiment to try to speed up that translation process from academic ideas to action. And today's is an experiment in particular, isn't it? <laughs> well, it is, Charlie. Thank you for bringing that up. Because, <laughs> you know, one of our big rules of, uh, of research chatter was to never, ever, under any circumstances, talk about our own research. Uh, but as we started getting more mature in our research chatter episodes, we decided to make an exception today. And the topic of today's podcast, at least the jumping off point, Charlie, is some work that I'm doing with Mike Toffel at Harvard Business School on the topic of CEO activism. CEO activism is where CEOs like Tim Cook from Apple, Howard Schultz from Starbucks, speak out about controversial social issues not directly related to their business. And we've had a lot of fun working on this topic. It's very newsy, I guess you'd say. And you can find some of our op-eds on this topic on my academic website. So, Charlie, why did we let me break the big rule of research chatter, which is not to talk about our own research? Remind me again why we're doing this. <laughs> well, it's, it's just because you're so convincing, Ronnie. I mean, anything <laughs> you suggest, I, I, I tend to go with. No, the, 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 real, the, the way I think about this is, is as when I'm teaching, say, my Ph.D. seminar in Strategy Foundations, where we read some of the most important foundational research in the field, I also squeeze in one or two of my own papers. And I tell the students it's not because I think this really rates with the, uh, you know, the most influential work of the field. Hey, speak for yourself, Charlie. Uh, <laughs> I always do. Um, but because it's also very useful to sort of talk about research in progress from someone who's done it, where it comes from, how the ideas were shaped, and where they're leading to next. It often just that, that personal voice on research is so rare, and, and I've found it very valuable in the classroom. So we thought, we thought we'd try it here and see how it goes. Well, I appreciate, Charlie. Actually, one of the things I think you'll agree, being here at Academy of Management and interacting with so many students, is you realize that the sausage-making of research that we take for granted, how you take an idea and it ends up as a published paper, that's a mystery to most people at the beginning of this. Yes. We've been doing this long yeah. enough where I think we sometimes forget that. And so being able to show people how ideas got started, the steps you took to execute it, and in this case, a still-in-progress idea and research agenda, I hope that'll be valuable. One of the things I want to do today, Charlie, is kind of just spark a, a discussion about this CEO activism topic. It, it's very related to a lot of sort of interest groups at the academy, maybe particularly the uh, social issues and management group. Yeah. But do you see these high-profile cases of CEOs speaking out as you know just one-time phenomenon, or do they really provide the foundation that we could build some research on? That's interesting. Well, uh, clearly with with the amount of public public activism or just just 
public influence making that uh, that CEOs and business leaders have been engaged in over the last year or two, clearly something is happening out in the world, and and research ought to have something to say and some some light to shed on that. I did one of my questions that came to mind right away about this research was this term CEO activism because I mean let's be honest, there's been these high profile cases lately that seem very distinctive, but CEOs have always been influential. They just have many pathways, many other paths, often private or more money-oriented, where through which they use their influence. And activism has actually been more of a form of influence for those who are out of power, who already don't have access to all these other powerful forms of activism. So I'm curious how you even came up with that term and decided to, to denote it that way. It's a great question, Charlie, and, and I take the point. I think on one hand, first, you know, CEOs have been involved in public policy and issues unrelated to their business for quite some time. I mean, you think about sort of going back to J.P. Morgan, some of the uh, famous CEOs, the Wanamaker uh, is a good example who got involved during Prohibition. A lot of CEOs were involved uh, filing amicus briefs with the Supreme Court about affirmative action. So you've actually seen a long history mm. of corporate activism um, around the civil rights movement as well, I mm. should mention, in the 1960s and 70s. I actually did not know that. And, and so we have this tradition in a lot of ways. I think what's interesting now is sort of the single individuals stepping up with op-eds and, and, and tweets on these issues in real time, trying to change legislation, getting politicians to uh, revise different laws or trying to build uh, public support to reverse these laws uh, in other ways. That seems to me sort of new. And I also think the focus on these social issues that can be relatively controversial depending where you live in the United States has been really interesting because we've often thought of business as being apolitical uh, for a very practical reason. You know, why would you want to alienate 50% of your customers, or yes, even 40%. Yeah. And some of these issues really beg the question, is something changing there? And so that's what I yeah. think is different. To your activism yes. point, that's another good one. And and I just would say that, you know, CEO activists like surely are, are very powerful people. And in fact, that's foundational to kind of why they think they can have an impact because they have a microphone um, that they can speak uh, into. And, you know, social media allows them to speak to lots of people all at once. So it's a different kind of activism, not of the powerless, but more of somebody who has that platform to try to influence things. And so there might be other ways to think about it. Advocacy rather than activism yeah. in one way. Well, I suppose, I mean, we call it activism when celebrities and actors and musicians do it. In some ways, it seems like it's the province also of celebrity CEOs. And this may be a relatively new category of business actors who we haven't seen so much as in the past. It's a great point, Charlie. And I think once sometimes you write a paper and you realize you might have identified a phenomenon, but it might be the, a different one than what you actually yeah. thought you identified. Yes. And so I think that the angle that uh, CEOs are also simultaneously celebrities can be really, really interesting here. So you know, Howard Schultz, Tim Cook, Sheryl Sandberg, who's a COO, but certainly a celebrity. She absolutely People is, like Lloyd yeah. Blankfein at Goldman Sachs. I mean, they are household names and they are celebrities in, in that way and certainly business celebrities. Yeah. And the question then is, is the influence we're seeing from these men and women, does it derive from them being business leaders or does it derive from them being celebrities? And in some ways, our most famous business leaders have become celebrities. So in yeah. some sense, then the question is, what's the difference? Yeah. Um, I think a, a big issue in terms of dealing with that be to be look at more anonymous CEOs, CEOs who are, might be you know famous in a local setting, right, but not well-known outside the local area, and see how they influence local issues. That might be a really great way to tease out the phenomenon between celebrity and CEO. Yeah. Well, this and this comes up in some of the results of your paper as well. So. Uh, I guess you went and did experiments to see how consumers react both in their 
feelings or attitudes about these social issues that, that CEOs are pushing on, as well as their attitudes towards the company once they've been told that the CEO is active about it. So I, I guess it, would you share kind of what you how you did that and what you found in that? Sure. So the way we set up the experiment is we worked with, with a company called Civic Science, uh, where I'm one of the advisors. And they helped by basically doing surveys all around the internet with their partner websites. And we were able to basically use different versions of these questions regarding Tim Cook's views, let's say, on Indiana's controversial 2015 Religious Freedom uh, Act. And depending on the views expressed by Tim Cook, we also asked them how uh, the respondents felt about the law and their intent to buy Apple products. And so right there, I think you see something interesting, which is one is that you know Tim Cook is a very well-known CEO. He's also, you know, he came out as gay in Business Week uh, recently um, in terms of uh, a little bit before this whole incident. So it might have been well-known to the respondents. And those are some interesting issues that complicate um, any kind of analysis. I think at the end of the day, what we find is you know, fascinating that basically Cook impacts people's intent to buy Apple products. It seems like when they hear Tim Cook speaking about discrimination and the Indiana RFRA, that acronym, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, is what I'll use mm. throughout. When they hear him talking about RFRA, they're more likely to buy Apple products. But it's really only a specific segment of consumers who are more likely, and that's consumers who politically are, are, are liberal. And we find that by looking at their prior answers on things like same-sex marriage. Okay. In now, but does, so does he sway... Uh, other people, I mean, the whole point of activism is to change people's minds about the underlying issues. Does this also shift how people think about the issue? Not necessarily. So mm. what we find is public opinion, once the question is framed uh, regarding RFRA, Indiana's law, and discrimination, you see people's opinion of the law really plummet. But it really doesn't matter who's saying that it's discrimination, whether it's Tim Cook, whether it's uh, Angie's List CEO Bill Osterley, whether it's the unnamed Republican mayor of Indianapolis, or even whether it's an unattributed quote. Mm. What pollsters have known for a long time is once you put the words discrimination, for example, into a question, it's going to change the way people respond. And whether the messenger is a famous celebrity CEO or even the voice of God that you hear doing the previews <laughs> of the movies, yeah. it really didn't matter in our study. Yeah. And that's what I think was also interesting. It didn't seem like our CEO activism was about changing people's minds. It was kind of about communicating where you stood to people who maybe already agree with you. And I think yeah. that might be a more useful yeah. model to look at what we're seeing out there in the real but world. But that actually gets at least a, an important subset of your customers actually more excited about uh, about your product. Yeah. and, and But, Charlie, this might you know, underpin why companies are starting to speak out on these issues and, yeah. and flummoxing a lot of analysts. Yeah, because, I mean, obviously this is something that's really close to Tim Cook's heart for very important reasons, but he was by no means the only company uh, out in front on this issue. Salesforce was, Mark uh, was also Salesforce, extremely yes. aggressive in, in fighting this law, saying that his company would boycott Indiana. And notably, most re recently, when actually the, the governor backed off those uh, the, the sort of worst elements of that, or most discriminatory elements of that that bill, actually rewarded the state with a big expansion and investment there. Well, Charlie, this is the other angle on CEO activism, which is it's one thing to write a, an op-ed in the Washington Post. It's another thing entirely to basically threaten to remove business from a state um, in terms of economic sanctions or reward businesses for doing particular things. And we saw that in my home state of North Carolina with the HB2 legislation. Yeah. So companies like PayPal and uh, Deutsche Bank basically you know, stated that they would not create jobs that they had uh, intended to create in North Carolina because of HB2. As we'll talk about later in the podcast, the National Basketball Association 
Association decided to remove the All-Star Game, a huge annual event and moneymaker for the league and for the uh, the host from Charlotte uh, to New Orleans, I believe. I think I don't know if they've decided yes, where to go, but to, to New Orleans um, in response to HB2. So this, this is something different than speaking out and rallying the public. It's actually sort of inflicting uh, economic uh, sanctions on uh, states and municipalities that have passed these yeah. kinds of laws. And this, I mean, this has been a tool in the political arsenal of groups for some time. Liberal groups calling for, for boycotts of some products and conservative groups also boycotting products they disagree with. But to see large companies saying boycotting or shifting where they'll put business, I, you know, I guess this lines up with my beliefs about anti-discrimination as well. But somehow the reverse of it, also rewarding the right behavior is so explicit in saying, yes, now I'm putting down $40 million to invest in Indianapolis. Somehow that made me start to be a little squeamish. The the quid pro quo was so high, I, uh, I felt a little uncomfortable with that. What's really interesting to me about this research is, you know, I may have my own particular views on an issue, but I interact with people who have different views. And I also try to put myself in their shoes and think about it. if I was on the other side, if I disagreed with a company on a particular issue, how would I feel about these things? Yeah. And to your point, even when I agree, do I think that sort of the, the model they've set up to reward and punish uh, different states and cities is fair? I think it's really interesting to think about in the context of do we think companies have too much power in our political system? I mean, yeah. I thought we just had yeah. a whole sort of election cycle discussing that, right, in the United States. And yet, and yet we also at the same time, out of the other side of our mouth, probably, you know, we, we talk about these CEO activists and something that's a positive in a lot of ways. So you'll see the coverage of these things spin from one sense we don't want to end up having corporate oligarchy and the other way that we're celebrating CEO activists. It's true, though, certainly the way this is covered in the media, because this phenomenon, we're talking about it in this sort of anti-discrimination movement that it's really just at a certain moment, I think, that uh, LGBTQ issues are really at the fore and and uh, um, there's much greater discrimination fairly broadly. There may just be a really moment for that, but there's certainly lots of this sort of activism from the right as well. We mm -hmm. had Chick-fil-A being, I think, making yep. large donations, leaders making large donations in anti-abortion. Domino's Pizza is uh, well known. Um, you yeah. know, they've separated. It's the Domino's Pizza CEO who's in separate activities, been active in anti -abortion. So they've been very careful to try to make them ex uh, uh, explicitly uh, yes, separate. Yes, as far uh, as I know, though, uh, you know, there were lots of efforts to tie Domino's to those activities. And, and yeah. you've mentioned boycotts both from the left and the right. Target faced a, a, uh, a large-scale petition after their their, uh, their yeah. change of policy regarding their bathrooms recently. Yeah. I mean, and the, the Koch brothers, let's, it's all another one. Here's two very wealthy businessmen who, but it gets treated in very dark conspiratorial terms, the amount of money they put into promoting their conservative beliefs throughout the And this the is the big question. So I guess, I mean, it's, it's really interesting, Charlie. I mean, during this conversation, I've seen at least two touch points between you know, what originally started off as just one paper that I'm working on with all these mm -hmm. other things. So one is the literature on social movements. Um, and so a lot of people in our uh, field yes, have studied yes. sort of the effects of boycotts, who activists target. So you think about work that Chuck Easley and Mike Lennox are doing, mm -hmm. Braden King and Sarah Suley. Uh, folks who are trying to understand this process, I think that the CEO activism angle is something maybe that's interesting for, for those folks. Mm -hmm. The second one, I, I think, is also out there, which is sort of, you know, in our political system, how do we think about speaking out on a particular side of the issue? It is, you know, as you said, it's cast in very different ways. So if we don't want more corporate involvement in our politics, should it be both CEO activism, right? 
and the types of things you're talking about with the Koch brothers, or are they somehow different? I think one critical distinction might be transparency. You might argue that transparent activism, where we know who is the author behind the statement, almost yes. the equivalent yeah. of, you know, I, um, you know, I've approved this message. That might be something different than what people are worried about with dark money. So I yeah. think that would be an interesting distinction to look at, two think, connections we could make. I think that's true if we think about, say, climate change activism and then anti-environmental regulation activism, I think people feel generally comfortable if ExxonMobil comes out and says, we really don't think this is a problem for the world, we, we are going to need fossil fuels for the foreseeable future, but if they start you know, somewhat secretly funding lots of uh, pseudoscientific studies to try to support their point, then there's a lot more skepticism is, uh, and is, is I deserved. Do, I think, and I think the disclosure angle is important. And so the CEO yeah. activism angles we were talking about are very public, and so that might be one thing why they're treated yeah. a little bit differently. What about another distinction which you've made there, which I think of in the European context as being being very salient at the moment, which is between the individual and the company? Because with the recent Brexit vote, with the high-profile vote of the, the population, or 51% of the population of the United Kingdom or England voted to leave the European Union, business leaders lined up uniformly against that. Now, that didn't actually win the day. So we could talk about how it's sort of similar to what you're saying. It may not actually sway people's opinions all that much, but they did it. I would say this was a case, I, I have to say, I don't know British culture well enough to know whether any of them are cele celebrities, but most of them were doing it in their role as CEO. So in their former role, they were saying, this is bad for business. If I run EasyJet, I'm telling you, our business is there and we are going to need this connection to Europe. If I run a major bank, we rely on this connection to Europe and our membership in the EU. So it's different, uh, isn't it, from what you what you are studying in these personal roles? I, I think so. I, you know, I think uh, CEOs are well known for speaking on economic issues related to trade, even yes. things like uh, skills, training, education, yeah. things that might uh, sort of be in the province of uh, something the CEO would know about and care about. And I think they have a lot of legitimacy on those issues, and people expect them to speak out. LGBTQ rights, I think, is another issue that's sort of maybe a little bit different. We don't necessarily expect CEOs to have moral authority on those issues. Yeah. But then again, when you look at companies, I mean, I think it's 75% of the Fortune 500 has some sort of non-discrimination ordinance. So yes, when I talk to yeah. a lot of these companies, they've already settled some of these issues inside their organizations. And so it isn't such a big step for them to speak out about these things going yeah. on at the state and local level in the U.S. So honestly, I also do, I do think that here there may be something really actually deeper about trade and business that's very friendly to non-discrimination in particular. So I, I mentioned before, we were, we were talking before and the Jane podcast. Jane Jacobs' book. Yep. Jane Jacobs has a book called Systems of Survival, which is actually a platonic dialogue over several chapters between people talking about the moral foundations of business and government. And, and the whole book basically argues that there are very different moral underpinnings to the two activities. She calls them protecting and trading, I think. But, but that they had their internal logic and they're absolutely appropriate for what they do, and that the hard things are when you get them mixed because they, they are somewhat contradictory. But for free trade, valuing sort of openness to anyone who brings some value and having trusting trade is so important, and I would say anti-discrimination would be foundational for that. You know, I agree. So I think you're right in saying that maybe this is just obvious to a lot of people in business. I think there's two parts of it. One is just the basic notion that, you know, if I discriminate against people, there's less people to trade with. There's yeah. also this, this war for talent that's going on, right? And yeah. trying to hire the best and brightest people. Well, if you start, you know, sort of excluding categories of people or making them feel unwell, 
welcome, uh, it's going to be really hard to hire the best and brightest. And not just people who are part of those affected groups, but other people who are not part of those groups yeah. who, who, who may want a welcome environment as well. Well, this, and, this actually also goes back to the sort of urban economics you were talking about last time we we talked there was that early research i actually don't know if it's uh, if it's held up all that well to uh to, to sort of secondary re-examination, but about the emergence of creative clusters in urban areas. Richard and one Florida. of the findings was that often it was gay community would move into sort of marginal areas of cities, creative sort of creative workers would follow, and then you really saw sort of the emergence of knowledge work and more creative innovative industries on top of that. So the set of values okay. of openness may be even more essential for our kind of modern digital age than they've been ever. But as you see, this also has implications for how political our companies and our CEOs are going to be. Mm. You know, for a long mm. time, the CEOs I talked to, you know, they kind of primed, pride, uh, sort of prided themselves in being apolitical and not yes. trying to take explicit positions, especially on controversial issues like yes. this. But if you see CEOs becoming more political, and, and we have a more politically polarized system in the U.S. and in Europe in a lot of places. Yeah, absolutely. And so the question is, what is this going to do in yet another segment of society, i.e., corporate becomes more politically polarized. And that's something I think that regardless of what side of the issue we're on might be uh, a cause for concern. That's right. That's right. And as people's attitudes towards business um, are certainly more negative. As I was trying to think of examples of this in Europe, I mean, I've been there five years. I probably am just not as deeply culturally aware. But it does seem like Europe is perhaps a touch less friendly to business overall. I can't think of as many examples of this sort of celebrity CEO who's sort of loved so widely, uh, you know, over and above just the, the business, maybe in the fashion industry. So in Italy, I think people are very aware of the leaders of, of sort of families that, that run top fashion yeah. companies. But I could think of fewer examples, and I wondered actually if attitudes towards business had some uh, some relationship to when when we're open. I think Richard Branson, as we talked about yes, before, a, would be an interesting person to look at. Uh, you know, the politics are different, and the role of, of companies in society are different, yep. and, that, and that's an interesting one to, to consider. I think in Asia, one of the things that uh, Mike Toplin and I are doing are trying to look for these examples around the world as uh, we prepare a case study for this for, for class. Yep. And uh, in Asia, there's a different set of issues and a different way uh, CEOs engage uh, with society. So I think you, you might not find exactly the same dynamic that you find in the U.S., and, uh, and that would limit, I think, its interest uh, for research. But I think if we can find these parallel examples, if we're successful in that, then we sort of have a wider spread phenomenon. Um, you know, the other question is, I think, benchmarking, you know, CEO activism against other kinds of social activities that companies engage in, like CSR. So there's a huge literature now on impact investing in CSR, trying to estimate the impact. You know, I've been thinking about how to measure impact of CEO activism. You know, in some sense, this is getting a lot of media attention. Uh, you know, PayPal's decision not to create those jobs in North Carolina gets a lot more attention than their CSR program. Which one actually is going to make more of a difference? Uh, that would mm. be something interesting to see because I think one issue is while we may be getting a lot of media attention on CEO activism, some of the things we're already studying in corporate social responsibility, for example, could have a much bigger impact uh, on the bottom line. So that's yeah. that's something I think would make this sort of an, a more interesting research topic uh, as well. Yeah. So to line it up with basically non-market strategies in general and see where where that's, it goes. That, that's you, my, yeah, that's my theory of the case of how you make a new phenomenon part of the research canon is you bring it into you know, almost horse races and comparative analysis with things we already study. Hmm, hmm, very interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. But, but Charlie, actually, one thing I wanted to ask you, we talked about this before, with there's other, another kind of organization, the National Basketball Association, and, and, the, and the ACC, one of our, our uh, sports leagues at the college level, a lot of pressure on these organizations uh, and some proactive actions by places like the NBA or uh, sort of organizations like the NBA to actually be activists on these issues. Pulling the All-Star game out of Charlotte was a very big decision, one that I don't think everyone predicted would happen. 
a lot of people in strategy study sports, and sometimes they get the bad rap that uh, you know sports is so different. It's, you know, how can you apply our principles from strategy to sports? This is something where I think actually I see a lot of the activism coming from sports be very similar to what's happening uh, in the quote, traditional corporate America. How do you see that? I mean, uh, on, on the sports angle. Yeah, that's very that's very interesting. I was surprised. I did not really expect that uh, sort of high-profile sports would be. Uh, on the leading edge of this, I think of them as much more traditionalist worlds. I was very, very happy to see it, but uh, but I was surprised that they reacted so strongly. But I think again, these these sports are run through now with these principles of of competition and and openness that uh, that again just don't reconcile very well with uh, with laws that are deeply discriminatory. Discriminatory. I also think one clue might be looking at the constituents and the, the consumers of these kinds of, uh, of entertainment and sports. So you look at the NBA, it's a very diverse and young kind of group that's going to watch those basketball games. Mm-hmm. I think they may have a certain set of values. And so to the extent that the HB2 law in North Carolina was deemed as not being consistent with those values, the NBA made yeah. a decision like that. Whereas Coke Industries, which is largely an oil company, they're not really terribly worried about, about liberal boycotts of their of their product. Mm-hmm. I wondered, because you've had this fine that that people had more intense identification with Apple products after they'd heard about the uh, the sort of anti-discrimination stance of the CEO. I wondered if a product like Salesforce, which is a sort of B2B, you know, software product for businesses, would they get the same impact from the stance, or do they get the same impact from the stance of their CEO, or is it not really such an issue for them? It's a great question. So in a B2B context, there's two things to think about. One is, maybe it's about the employees at the company versus True. the absolutely. customer. I think because a company like Salesforce, said as much. Right, a company like Salesforce is trying to recruit the best and brightest people to work on their product, and so by taking these public stands, and Mark Benioff's been very public on these kinds of things, that sends a message to your employees, and maybe helps you recruit. Also, you know, even in the B2B market, you're looking for the slightest edges that you can get, and sometimes um, identifying what might be seen as a quote boring software product with a broader mission or cause could be really useful as well in making yeah. a decision between two two different things and two different offerings. So that you know, it, it remains to be seen uh, how that works. Um, you know, at, at the end of the day, Charlie, I think that I'm hoping that people in sort of the corporate social responsibility, social issues and management world will be interested in this. People who are talking about social movements, um, you know, if CEOs, whether they're celebrities or just more of the traditional CEOs who are less well known, how much influence can they have on these issues and uh, and is the impact something that stands up uh, to our other sort of studies that we found in terms of impact of CSR for example or philanthropic giving that's kind of where I th- one foundation where I think we could look at this the other one would be think linking to top management teams and demographics you know other folks have talked a lot about sort of the changing demography of our of our corporate leaders and I think that could also be something that could be driving a lot of these different uh, mm. social activism stands mm. if our if our if our uh, CEOs are younger from more progressive areas and are demographic and politically predisposed to these views, that could have a huge issue just on how activist the business community is. It could be a sh- simple shift in demographics. These it's are all true. unanswered questions. It's true, and it's such a powerful experience when you, you know, I'm sure black CEOs are pulled over by police at a much higher rate, and uh, but when they speak out with about it, like I think one black Republican in Congress did recently, mm-hmm. it, it has a very high impact on, on how people think about these things. So it will be very interesting to line it up against social movements and other forms of non-market influence and see see how things come out see how they how they balance against each other so So we wrap it up there i think i think we'll we'll turn here towards the segment that we always end the podcast with and that's the i wonder segment so it's always nice to have something just to riff on right at the end and so what we do here we're really trying to capture some of the 
the water cooler conversation or the, the coffee pot conversation that happens in uh, around the university where people are kind of batting around ideas and where many research ideas and even research collaborations are born. So we just we just try that here with something uh, something over the last few weeks that we've been wondering about. If it's all right, I'll, I'll kick it off. So uh, we're here at the Academy of Management in Anaheim, California, and so we've been involved in lots of sessions. I'm just going to steal mine shamelessly from the uh, – we had a workshop yesterday on – Charlie, the, ideally you want to promote things that are about to happen, not things that already <laughs> happened, but I'll let you go on. <laughs> well, it's not promoting, but uh, um, it's giving credit where credit's due to the anonymous uh, audience members who had some really interesting questions that I've been wondering about since. We, so we had this session on organization design. And a substantial part of it featured the use of experiments, either field experiments or laboratory experiments, and this has become more popular throughout management. It's always been an important technique, but in, in areas like strategy, it's becoming much more important as we're more careful about causality and interested in mechanisms. So, so people were sharing the ways they'd used laboratory experiments to explore interesting issues of, of complex organization design, which can be difficult to capture in a laboratory. So after we'd had three really experts in this topic who've published really top-notch academic work, someone in the audience asked, well, are companies using these sorts of experiments to learn about management inside their companies more often? And honestly, I think we all, I was moderating, we were all caught a little flat-footed about that. We're really just thinking about, about laboratories and academic research. But it is really true at the moment that companies are much more open to experimentation because from the marketing world, A-B testing, digital companies are all using testing before they do much of anything. And certainly large companies are studying their own management more carefully. So we saw this with Google recently, more data-driven companies are being very careful to gather data on what they do and actually explore it more extensively. And Google shared some of that research. The New York Times Sunday Magazine had a long article about what Google has learned about its more successful teams a couple months ago. But I don't think companies are really have moved to a level of using experiments on their own employees much. And some people in the audience said they, they thought it would be unlikely because one your employees and managers don't really feel like being subject in the experiments. They really like to feel like they're actors with agency who know what they're doing. And two, because there, there's a large danger of learning that things you really believe in, like values and principles and how to do things, actually don't have much influence in the world. So I've been wondering, uh, really just since, uh, since Saturday, wondering, huh, well, uh, might companies actually end up using, using experiments to, to learn about their management and strategy much more than they do at the moment? It's a fascinating question, Charlie, and I think I wonder personally whether some of our scholars at that PDW and others are going to be the, the part of the vanguard that brings those practices into companies. That's you know, right. We often are pretty reactive. We see what companies are doing. We study it, but we might be the ones to bring those experiments inside organizations more systematically. Yeah. A lot of us are doing those field experiments anyway, no and the more of us who do that, um, the more it has a chance to get instantiated into companies. Yeah. Um, so that'd be interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I've been wondering about something uh, a little bit different, um, also sparked by our conversations at the Academy of Management. You know, I've met a lot of folks who are more senior scholars a few years ahead of me, and a lot of them are taking administrative roles at their universities, mm. whether they want to or not. <laughs> and uh, as they become you know, area heads and as they become deans and maybe even college presidents, one thing to always ask ourselves is, you know, are we applying our own sort of teaching and research to the job at hand? And with some of the people, I really see that, a very concerted effort to really practice what they preach. Um, and others, I, I think it's uh, it's a little more complicated. And so one thing I've wondered is, you know, higher education and business schools in particular are really important 
laboratories for actually crafting and executing strategy. But mm. one that I wish I heard more about. You know, I've learned a lot about my home university at Duke just by being a faculty member for there for 10 years. But I'm always very interested in how other schools are run, you know, what their major revenue sources are, how their programs are designed, how they think about their strategy. Because I think the business we're in is actually really interesting. And yeah. I, I took this to its logical conclusion, and I, I taught a case on the future of business school, I think I might have mentioned before, where I asked the students to apply uh, the things we've done in strategy, the five forces. It was disruption, take, wasn't it? Yeah, well, yeah exactly. And disruption and all this other stuff. So to me, it'd be really interesting if we learned more. And maybe, maybe there's a PDW out there on this already, but about the business of business schools uh, and, and, and how that's sort of affected people from our field, from strategy, who are now basically sitting in these positions to make these decisions. And I've certainly learned a lot from these kind of ad hoc conversations. But given how much people in this, uh, in this community that we're in think about strategy and research on strategy, it'd be great to think about when they actually are doing it, what they've learned from that experience. Yeah. And I, I would love to yeah. see more like that. That's what I'm wondering about today. I, I find that very interesting as well, how universities are run. And to what extent they, we can say that they're parallels to business or that they're not. I will. I feel I, I have to share my reaction when I'm working with someone to get something done, You know, even if it's just on a committee or in a department. And they say, well, in my research, it says we should do it this way. It makes me extremely nervous. And I, I think it's because we often study that which we are the least intuitively good at. We don't follow. So when we're in areas where we just kind of get things done effectively, fairly naturally, it usually flows most smoothly. Whenever people start trotting out their own sort of frameworks from research to actually handle, I, I worry actually that it will go kind of <laughs> poorly uh, because uh, because we're actually moving out of the range of where they have uh, natural skills. So, like so Charlie, you're saying the lesson is if someone cites their research in the real world, run. <laughs> I will just say that my own gut often, often runs that way. So, the, well, that brings us to the end of our seventh edition of Research Chatter. If you liked it and want to hear more, subscribe in iTunes and please spread the word. Our online home is at Strategic Management Society. That's all run together. Strategicmanagementsociety.wordpress.com. There you can find links to all the papers we discuss. We'll, we'll link to Ronnie's paper today, plus our contact info, Twitter accounts, and, uh, and other ways to reach us. Yeah, let us know what you think. We've really enjoyed your feedback in person, in the comments, on Twitter, at our Society's Facebook page. Let us know if you have new topics or papers to cover. Otherwise, next time we're going to have to do one of Charlie's to keep it even here. <laughs> uh, we'd love to hear from you um, on any of those mediums. For now, thanks for listening, and see you next time.